words take seconds. Others take minutes. Some murders take hours. Now, this murder takes years. Welcome to the Film Festival Secrets Podcast. I'm Chris Holland. The voice you just heard is that of Richard Gale narrating the film he also directed, a short horror comedy called The Horribly Slow Murderer with the Extremely Inefficient Weapon. The film's a mock trailer for a scary feature film in which a ghoulish, white-faced figure beats a man to death with a spoon. He's invisible to everyone except his victim. Horribly Slow played dozens of festivals in 2008 and has garnered nearly 30 million views on YouTube. In the last seven years, Gale has made several short sequels to the film and is now crowdfunding the feature version. He joined me online from Los Angeles with a small live audience listening in on the call. You have turned this one torture, you know, comedy as torture gag into an empire. Uh, and I'm assuming you're, I mean, I think everybody's familiar with comedy as torture by now. I think the first really big, um, uh, pop culture, you know, example of it I can think of is the, um, thawing scene from Austin Powers where yeah. you know, it, it's all these different sequences. And, uh, there's one bit in particular where he's, you know, going to the bathroom after having been asleep for, 40 years or whatever it was and and he just you know he he pees until it's not funny anymore and then he keeps going until it comes back out on the other side as funny Mm -hmm. um i i don't know that that the not funny thing ever quite happens in in um the original film (laughs) hopefully not yeah but um it is it is a really good example of like just drawing a gag out way longer than anybody ever thought that they could. Yeah, you're referring to a a part of the short film, which the full title is The Horribly Slow Murderer with the Extremely Inefficient Weapon. And for those of you who may not have seen it, you can easily find it by just Googling the words horribly slow and horribly slow murderer will come up as a shortcut and you can find it pretty easily. But it's a 10 minute long full movie trailer about this unstoppable killer armed with a spoon who is inexplicably hitting this one man over and over for years and chasing him all over the world. And this attacker is supernatural. He can't be stopped by any means. And it really is a nightmare. Um, and, and could actually, if it weren't such a ridiculous uh, concept, it could be a genuinely horrific horror film. And I think there's a certain small percentage of the film that is genuinely horrific. Um, but, um, but it is primarily a comedy and it does, as, as you just described, push the envelope in terms of how far you can stretch out a joke. I honestly didn't think there's this one part where he's hitting him over and over and me doing my best Don LaFontaine impersonation is doing the, uh, the trailer narrator voiceover. The inner world's life. Yes. And, and saying how he's hitting him again and again and again and again and again. 
And I didn't think I could do it for more than 30 seconds, but as it turned out, and by the way, what you hear in the short film, that was all one take without any editing at all in terms of audio. That was just me getting it on a mic and doing again and agains as varied and um, sort of making it as insane as I could uh, for a minute and 15 seconds continuous. It will hit you with a spoon again and 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 again then again, and again, and again, and again. There might be one or two cuts in there, but I think pr pretty much, if I recall, it's, it's almost completely unedited audio of me just saying again and again and again. And then I cut the picture to fit the voiceover. Right. Uh, so two things strike me about the film. Number one is probably the most horrific thing about it is that no one else can see the spoon killer. That's true. No one else can see this, you know, and so the fact that they just think he's insane, uh, I think that isolation actually does make it sort of horrifying and terrifying uh, yeah. to, to think about. Um, and the other thing is that at the time that this came out, that a lot of those, you know, sort of Japanese into American horror films like The Ring um, were, you know, were hitting the scene, and none—I I won't say none of them, but very few of them were as honestly terrifying as the original Japanese versions for right. whatever reason. But ironically, this spoof on that sort of genre in a, in a sort of lateral way brought more of that to the table than I thought a lot of those you know, um, remakes of the, the Japanese films did. Oh, well, thank you. That's uh, nice to hear. Yeah. I mean, I, I did want it to be genuinely horrifying in some ways. And uh, one of the things that I think makes the comedy work was I always um, made sure that the actors played things deadly seriously. There was no winking at the camera um, in terms of the performances. There's no recognition of, oh, we know this is a ridiculous um, concept and we're just having fun here. Um, and I think the more the actors play it deadly serious, the uh, funnier it is. Yeah, less sketch comedy and more, uh, you know, play it seriously, but uh, sideways the comedy, in, which I think really works. Um, what inspired you to choose your protagonist? You know, it, it, a lot of these things would have had kind of a young final girl type or maybe even sort of a robust, you know, um, young 20 something dude instead you've got a thing <laughs> doughy you know almost office worker type <laughs> um well it, it just sort of came about because um it, it wasn't planned in any particular way the the way it really came about 
it's a concept that I had wanted to do for some years. It's a concept that I had come up with more than a decade before I made it and just never actually made it until I was ready to, to at one point, just do something that would be um, comedy. Uh, and I was friends with the actor, Paul Clemens, and uh, he's one of my best friends. And um, he contacted me after seeing a short film I had made a year before Horribly Slow called Criticized, which played in festivals uh, and had a good festival run and was written up in Rue Morgue magazine, uh, which he's a subscriber uh, of. And so he read about Criticized, contacted me and asked if he could get a copy. We ended up meeting for coffee and he, Paul has a great um, resume as an actor. He starred in... Uh, the Beast Within, which is one of those 80s grindhouse classics um, from MGM. And uh, he's done some really cool stuff. And he told me that he really wanted to do something with me and that he would be willing to do anything. Like he'd be willing to really push the envelope. And we both um, were very much on the same page in wanting to do stuff because that's what I want to do with my films. I ideally want to do things that I haven't seen before in a film. And I ideally would like to try and push the envelope in terms of, um, of intensity or um, whatever it is we're trying to portray on the screen to try to really make it um, beyond what people may have seen before. And the fact that he was willing to go that extra mile, uh, the thought then occurred to me while I was having coffee with Paul that, hmm, he may actually be an actor who would be willing to endure the suffering that it would require to play Jack Cuchayo. And the character of Jack Cuchayo, this is the victim of the spoon killer. Uh, his last name, Cuchayo, is the American pronunciation of Cucchiaio, which is Italian for spoon. And he, um, he truly is getting hit with a spoon for real throughout the entire filming. On the first day of shooting, uh, Brian Rohan is the actor who plays the spoon killer, the Ginosaji. And I should mention that Ginosaji, the name of the character, the spoon killer, is Japanese for silver spoon. He is a very nice person and a very gentle soul, and he did not want to hurt Paul. And so he was holding back with his spoon hits. And on the first day of shooting, we were doing something where they're running down the sidewalk and shooting out of the side of a van to get them running in a tracking shot. And he's hitting him with the spoon, and it looks completely fake. You can tell that he's holding back. And I spoke to them after we did the first take, and I said, you know, it's just, I don't know. It just, it, it looks fake. It, it, you can tell you're not really hitting him. Is there any way you can maybe, you know, hit him harder? And Paul was wearing a leather jacket, and he said, no, hit me for real. Come on. So we did a little test. And Brian said, well, I don't want to hurt you. And Paul said, no, no, come on, hit me, hit me for real. It's a, it's a spoon. Yeah, hit me. And so Brian hits him. He says, no, no, come on, hit me for real. So he really hits him hard on the back of the shoulder through the leather jacket. He said, it's fine. As long as you don't keep hitting the same place over and over, it'll be fine. And so he said, okay. So we start filming. And now Brian's hitting him for real. And now Brian's a wonderful actor. And he's also a method actor. And he just starts freaking wailing on Paul. Uh, with the spoon. Uh, and, and it looks great. It looks real. Uh, but then it got to the point that after a few days of shooting, there'd be certain scenes where Paul would say, Oh God, Jesus, stop, please stop. I, no, I can't time out, time out. And we'd have to, you know, take five or take 10, let him, let him relax for a second. And then when we did this scene, that was a parody of the psycho shower scene, uh, Paul took his shirt off 
to go do that scene. And we had been filming earlier that morning and he had all these little pink oval marks on his back, these tiny little pink welts. And I said, oh my God, are those, those are real? He, yeah, yeah, yeah. So all I can say is thank you, Paul. You're the best. You're a trooper. Uh, but Paul recognized when we would look at the footage together and laugh at it, we realized, okay, this is funny stuff. You just got to keep going with this. So he was willing to, to endure. Um, he's probably been struck more times by a spoon than any other human. Um, we were considering maybe contacting Guinness. Yeah, I think maybe you should. Uh, the, I, let's just go back a little bit and talk about how you came to filmmaking. Was this a childhood thing? Was it something you'd always wanted to do or did you come to it later? It really was. When I was 11 years old, um, I had an epiphany while watching the very first Friday the 13th in the theater with my dad, which I begged him to take me to. And uh, I had this epiphany while watching this movie as a kid um, where I was staring at the backs of the heads of everyone in the audience. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know why this occurred to me, but at that moment, the thought occurred to me because the audience, it was a great screening. It was really fun. <clears throat> the audience was laughing and screaming and having a great time. And uh, there's a pass. And I realized that uh, it, the thought occurred to me that wouldn't it be great to actually make these things to make movies. And that's when the thought first occurred to me. And I made um, some feature length video movies when I was in high school with some friends uh, and just kept doing it all these years. And so I've been, I've been very fortunate in knowing what I've wanted to do for most of my life. And so um, you're working professionally as, uh, as, a, as a director? As a, what is it that you're doing day to day? Well, for, for about 15 years off and on, I worked at a uh, local cable TV station, uh, actually in the city of Beverly Hills, which I live not too far from in LA. And uh, as a producer and director and writer and editor and person. And it was a great gig to be able to pay the bills with because it allowed me to sharpen my skills of the fundamentals because all the basic fundamentals of filmmaking uh, and especially camera work, but also just pacing and editing and writing something and putting something together, uh, whether you're doing a documentary or news magazine segments, um, a lot of the fundamentals are still the same. Good framing and good composition are still the same, whether you're doing a, a feature or, or whatever. And so I was able to um, kind of sharpen my skills a bit, just doing that over and over for, for many years. And um, I did uh, direct and co-write a couple of feature films about over 10 years ago, one called The Proposal and one called Pressure. Um, but those were not the kinds of films like the other short films I had done on my own where I had total creative control those had producers and it was other people's money and I did not really have final say over how things were being done. And that's when I realized that I'm not so much a gun for hire type of director. I'm much more the type of director who, and I should mention that Hitchcock is one of my role models. Um, I'm the kind of director who really gets an idea of what I want to do visually that's very, very specific and I like to plot things out and do a lot of storyboards. And I really know exactly the film that I want to make. And so I realized that it doesn't matter how long it's going to take, but the next time I do a feature, I need to find the money and the backing to put it together myself. 
in order to do that. And so I did these couple of short films as baby steps to move in that direction. And now the horribly slow short film, um, it, we're gonna, I know we're going to talk about the festival circuit, uh, which was a big part of it. Uh, and after that, putting it on YouTube and it went viral on YouTube and ultimately became so popular that now we're going to be doing it as a feature film in the coming year and are currently in the middle of doing a Kickstarter campaign. And so all of that stuff is finally coming to fruition pretty much now as we speak. Yeah. What were the kinds of things that you felt like you couldn't live with as, as the gun for hire type director? Well, you know, it all depends. You're at the whims of whoever's in control. And in this case, it's the producer who brings the money to the project. Now, if you're working with a producer who's a great storyteller and, um, you know, and you're on the same page creatively, um, that would be a pleasure. But if you're a director, writer, and you're working with a producer who <clears throat> you're not on the same page with creatively, then your life can be hell. And that was the case, unfortunately, with me because um, I had to. It's really hard to make a low budget feature film, it's very challenging. Uh, and I had to expend a very large amount of energy on trying to diplomatically circumvent terrible ideas being foisted upon me <laughs> by a producer who had control. And so I had to very carefully, you know, be able to sidestep these terrible ideas and try to use some some uh, verbal Aikido to try to, you know, be able to at least make a movie that, uh, forget about trying to make a fantastic movie, just trying to make a movie that's not bad because of, you know, some of the folks I was working with. So it was, it was a tough experience. I realized, you know, you, the film can only rise and be as good as the team that you're surrounded by. Uh, and so that was a, a big part of my decision in, in not wanting to, to make a film that way again. I don't know. It sounds to me like you're just not a team player. Not at all. Not at all. No, I, I love my team that I work with now and they're the best. Um, well, everyone who worked on the uh, short film was just amazing. So let's talk about what happened once the, the film was finished and, and you got it out there. What, what kind of festivals did you go looking for? And um, how did you put to, did, were you, conscious enough of the festival circuit to have a strategy? I was. I um, I had had a good festival run the year before with this horror short called Criticized, which, by the way, you can also find on my YouTube channel, which is called Richard Gale Films on YouTube. Um, and so, luckily, because I had already had a short film that um, played in a number of genre festivals around the world, um, once you have a film that has already played somewhere and done well, then it's great. It, it becomes much easier to submit to festivals the second time around because they, a lot of them already know who you are. And it becomes much easier to just contact some of the people you know from the festivals and be able to um, just let them know that you have another film. And usually they're extremely uh, positive and, and receptive to um, taking a look at it. And then um, oftentimes programming it. Uh, and so one piece of advice I would give regarding festivals is, you know, being at a festival can be a pretty overwhelming experience. There's so much going on, but it's very important to make sure you make contact with the key people who actually helped bring your film to that festival, be it the festival director or whoever the programmers are. 
um, and actually get a chance to chat with them personally um, and be sure to get their contact info and keep in touch because that ultimately makes it so much easier the next time around when you have a film uh, to be able to get into those other festivals because the doors are already open. So uh, Horribly Slow debuted at Fantastic Fest, if I recall. It did. It was Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas at the Alamo Draft House, one of my favorite movie theaters on the planet. And that's where uh, I met you, actually. That's right. Um, yeah. And, I mean, that is, I mean, a festival unlike any other. Um, had you had some inkling that the film you'd made was going to be as, um, I hate to say big a hit, but you know, it was with festival audiences. It was a, it was a relatively decent hit. And one of those few, you know, short films that I can bring up with somebody else in the festival circuit who I don't know very well, I'd be reasonably sure they've at least heard of it, if not seen it. Um, right. What was the first, you know, point where you thought, Oh, this is, this is going to do something. Well, you know, that was the very first festival screen. That was the first public screening of The Horribly Slow Murder. That was the first time anyone saw it um, outside of us who, who made it. Uh, and so it was, it was just really great um, to see it on the big screen for the very first time. And uh, the moment I knew that it was really doing well, there's a part of the film where... Um, I don't think this is really a spoiler, but there's a part of the film where Jack um, is, there's a very quick shot of, it's like three seconds long, if that, of him in this uh, Polynesian looking tiki bar and it's very dark and he has a gun in his hand and he puts the gun in his mouth to try to end it all, to just end his spoon suffering. And the spoon killer knocks the gun away from his mouth and the gun goes off. And so basically the spoon killer prevents his suicide. And that got a huge laugh in the theater. And that was something that happened so quickly in the film that I honestly did not uh, know if people would even catch it. But it got this major laugh. It was almost like a, a punchline at the end of a whole section of the short. And so um, that was exciting to, to see, see it getting big laughs in places that I didn't even anticipate. So it was just thrilling. I mean, I couldn't ask for a more um, exciting and, and just positive festival experience than that. And then the, uh, um, the judges at the festival on the jury um, created an award uh, for Horribly Slow, they created a special jury prize for sheer enjoyability, <laughs> which was uh, something we were, we were very happy about. Uh, so were there any negative reactions to the film? None, none that I noticed in terms of the, the festival screenings. Since it has gotten on YouTube, um, it's funny. You can look at the ratio of thumbs-ups to thumbs down on the video and uh it's about a 43 to 1 ratio for every 43 people or 42 people who sees the film 42 of them or 43 give it a thumbs up and then one person really hates it because i think this is just my theory uh they want a happy ending <laughs> and this, this film does not deliver on the happy ending it really doesn't um with a vengeance, it does not. And so I think some people sort of uh, 
who, who, you know, horror may not be their thing and they just heard it was a comedy. So they wanted to see it, but maybe weren't prepared for such a dark comedy. And so some people, I think, watch it and just suffer through watching this poor man and what he goes through for 10 minutes. And then at the end, you know, or do not receive satisfaction. So there's a few comments on YouTube where people say, I just wasted 10 minutes of my life watching this. Yeah. Yeah. I always have the suspicion that um, some of those folks are also either just contrarians or uh, it didn't didn't live up to the hype. Like they'd heard amazing things about it. And they're like, well, this wasn't all that. Um, or they just have had a really bad experience as filmmakers themselves. I think the last group is mm-hmm. vanishingly small, but I think there are those people out there who, you know, who, whose um, filmmaking experiences don't go the way they want. And so they feel like they have to dump on other people's work, which is unfortunate. So, sure. or, or they may have had a bad experience with a spoon at some point in their lives. And it just, I had thought of back that. to them. They had a bad bring up, spoon could bring, yeah. It could bring up some deep seated things. We don't know. <laughs> so what happens next? I mean, it, it obviously played a bunch of festivals. Uh, how many and over what period of time? It Over the course of about a year, it played in about 70 festivals. And it really developed a lot of momentum. Um, it played in a lot of the, the genre festivals around the world. Uh, Fantastic Fest, uh, Dead Channels in San Francisco, Fantasia in Montreal, uh, P-Fan in Korea and um, uh, sieges in Spain, um, and a lot of festivals that I couldn't even afford to travel to because it played in so many different places. Um, but uh, it, And it developed this momentum where I think, you know, festival directors exchange notes with each other on films they're programming, and word got around that this was playing well for audiences. And so uh, I started receiving a lot of invites from festivals, which was nice. Um, and also it saved a lot of money on submission fees because that can really add up. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And uh, so at some point you, you turned your sights to uh, other projects, uh, but those mm-hmm. projects were uh, disturbingly familiar. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, after the festivals, it was actually during the festivals because in submitting the film, I was sending out DVDs with the short on it. At some point, while we were still playing in festivals, in fact, we hadn't yet played at Sieges in Spain, somebody leaked it onto YouTube without my permission. And it started to go viral on its own. So with zero um, marketing, someone had just, someone from the Czech Republic stuck it on their YouTube page channel. And it, got 75,000 views after five days. And then I filled out a form on YouTube and had it taken down because it, someone else had put it up. Plus, I had signed all these agreements with different festivals saying that they would have exclusivity and that it would not be online for other people to see while it's playing in the festivals. And I still had about four months in festivals. So I had it taken down. 24 hours later, some kid in Poland put it back up. So the genie was out of the bottle. Once 75,000 people have seen it, so many people have already copied it and it, people just started sharing it. So over the course of the next four months, almost every day, I took it down off of YouTube by filling out the form, the takedown request. Um, and then after we played Sieges, of sort of the last of the big festivals, then I put it up on YouTube and had actually 
done without knowing kind of an inadvertent guerrilla marketing campaign and had created a big demand for this film, I think, because people kept putting it up and I kept removing it. And so you could go to things like Google, uh, Yahoo Answers, where people are asking, where can I find the horribly slow murderer? I can't find it. And so people were hearing about it, but not able to find it for, for about four months. So then when I finally put it up, it went viral. It got a crazy amount of views, 1.1 million views in the first month on YouTube, which was something I just never could have possibly anticipated. Uh, and because the thing, you know, it was made to play in film festivals. It wasn't even made for YouTube, but ultimately I just wanted as many people as possible to see it. And so it got such a huge um, response on YouTube and it's just been going strong on this one short for the last six years now that it's been on YouTube. It's now got over 29 and a half million views and it just keeps going and going um, because of that. Um, I, and it's changed my view of YouTube because at the time, this was six year, over six years ago when I put this on YouTube. It was October of 2009. Um, you know, at the time, I thought of YouTube as, you know, funny amateur cat videos. And that was it, really. I didn't think of it as a place to um, help grow a filmmaking career. But ultimately, that's what it turned out to be for me. But because of the popularity of the short, I was able to um, develop uh, a following of people who just like um, this kind of stuff uh, and people who subscribe to the YouTube channel. And um, I realized that this is actually something that that can help my career um, even more so than the uh, fairly decently budgeted uh, features I had done years before that had budgets of over a million dollars each, but um, did not. They got DVD releases, but didn't ultimately get much press and much attention. And so, it we just decided to keep making videos, continuing the story of Jack um, trying to deal with this horrific spoon killer creature character and it became kind of a roadrunner and coyote thing which is easy to do and fun when you have a an unstoppable killer who can't be stopped by any means cool so you kept that character going with a number of sequels um how, how did those get started um we just i i just decided well i realized he's not jack's not really dead in the end of the short he's in bad shape but he's not dead uh and so we just decided to to continue the story um and the first thing we did was this sort of a it was a talk show called ask jack where viewers could write in and ask specific questions of the character and i decided to take advantage of all the different dynamics of being on youtube and audience interactivity was one of those fun things to play with. And we did a, a lot of experimental stuff. We did an interactive video called um, Save Jack, the Interactive Experience, which is a choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing with a video with four different choices on the screen of different things. What should Jack do to stop the Ginosaji? Or what would you do? Uh, and so you can sort of guide Jack's destiny by choosing. And it's basically a link that takes you to another video. So it's five videos interlinked together. Uh, the fun thing about that one is that in most of those choose-your-own-adventure types of videos, the primary video that has the menu on it of choices will last for about a minute, and then it'll just end if you don't choose anything. Ours continues on for over 20 minutes. 
And wow. so not, not choosing any choices is a fifth choice where, and it just keeps going and go and it just keeps changing. And there's all these different scenes. And so you can just watch what happens. And then Jack on the screen eventually starts yelling directly. It breaks the fourth wall. He starts yelling directly at the viewer saying, you know, push a goddamn button. You know, what's wrong with you? And, and it just kind of goes on and on and gets, gets more and more intense as it goes. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> that sounds like fun. So at some point you decided that your audience was big enough or the time was right or, or, or well, actually you tell me how, how did that come about where you're like, okay, it's time for the feature. Well, uh, there was a point at which a filmmaker friend said to me, you realize you got to make a feature of this once it had millions of views and, and lots of fans um, and I should mention that um, we've got some amazing fans all over the world, um, several of whom have gotten permanent tattoos of things related to our film, whether the spoon killer character or there's a Japanese symbol for spoon, which is known as the mark of the Ginasaji, which is on the Ginasaji's wrist. Uh, and that's when you know you actually have a cult following. It was around that time that a friend said, you've got to make a feature. So I started thinking about it, but it's actually taken several years to write the screenplay and develop the concept of how this can work. Because as a 10-minute short, it's this one big prolonged spoon joke with a lot of fun little twists and turns. And, and it is a fun little story, but it's ultimately this, this long extended spoon joke. So how to do that as a feature that works. Um, and it doesn't suffer from, you know, something that is just bloated and didn't need to be that long since the short is already pushing the, the envelope in terms of length. And so I realized that it just has to be a completely different story, um, different in the sense of not just what you see in the short film. And so I developed this story that is the something that we never talk about in any of the many videos that are on the YouTube channel. We never talk about where this spoon killer comes from and why is he attacking this man with a spoon and why is he using a spoon and is there a way to ultimately stop him and so all, there's all these different mysteries that have never been explained in all of the videos we've done and so that is what i realized would be the the perfect um subject matter of this uh, movie and so this movie was was uh, reverse engineered the screenplay from the short film in order to turn this faux movie trailer into an actual movie trailer retroactively once we do the feature and so there's moments that are in the short film that will be in the feature but we'll actually see them as full scenes and, and it's so, nine hours long right <laughs> I don't think we're going to have the budget to pull that off. Uh, um, I would, I would so love to do something like that, but um, you know, Peter Jackson had 330 million to do his trilogy of Lord of the Rings, which is over nine hours to actually make it, as I say in the short over nine hours. I just don't know. Um, I, I doubt it. Um, but it is going to be a very ambitious movie a very epic movie as far as low budget movies go uh, our budget is still to be fully determined i have two different versions of the movie that i can make two different versions that i've written um, one is much more epic 
than the other. Um, but even the smaller one is still extremely epic. It's very much the feature-length version of what this short film is. But there's a ton of story in this feature um, that is not in the short at all. Anyone who sees the short and thinks, oh, well, I've already seen the whole story, um, hasn't seen even less than 10% of what's in the feature. So what's what's the chronology of, of the feature film? Does it sort of um, take place after the events of the short film or does it go? No, no, it, it begins, it begins uh, a little bit before the events of the short film and then encompasses everything in the short film and then goes way beyond. Cool. And yeah. um, what's going to be the deciding factor on which one of these two versions that you make? It's going to be budget. Uh, at this point, uh, we're doing the Kickstarter now, and the Kickstarter has been great at generating startup funds for everything. Um, we set a goal for $50,000. We have now raised over 65000 so it is successful. Uh, the campaign uh, ends um, on Friday, December 11th, However, there will be uh, a way we're going to set up uh, an online store um, and that will be announced on my website, um, which is richard-gale.com uh, or the same site as ginosagi.com. But on our website, we're going to mention how to get to this store where even after the campaign ends, people will still be able to pre-order reward items from the campaign, the Blu-ray, there's some really cool near spoons, um, soundtrack, posters, T-shirts, and all that kind of stuff. So this is actually the second Kickstarter that you, you held for this. That's uh, correct. Talk a little bit about why that is. Yeah, the first Kickstarter we did started in September, and I set a really high goal uh, of $200,000. And we ultimately raised $109,000 in that campaign, which is fantastic. And in fact, it's so good that that puts us ranked as the uh, number four um, top most funded uh, horror movie Kickstarter project in Kickstarter history. Uh, however, because our goal was so high, uh, Kickstarter is all or nothing. So if you don't hit your goal of 200000 then you actually get zero. And so, however, we had um, gotten the uh, enthusiastic backing and attention from a large number of many hundreds of fans uh, and realized that um, we want to make this thing happen however possible. There were also some attention that we got from some private investors who want to put in a large amount of money, um, but they don't want to do it through Kickstarter. They want to become investors in the film, which is a different thing. And so we realized that the way to fund this is, and I want to keep it away from larger film companies, even though I've gotten offers from at least one of the major studios to meet and talk. And I've had some meetings, but I'm interested in maintaining the same level of control that I had when I made the short. Uh, and I don't wish to go back to that scenario I was in over 10 years ago, making films and not having that control. And so the goal here is to completely fund the movie with private 
investors uh, funding and also with the Kickstarter. And so we relaunched the Kickstarter. There's many examples of very successful Kickstarters that have done a relaunch after the first campaign did not reach its goal. And so that's what we did. Just uh, two days after the first campaign ended, we relaunched the campaign and um, very quickly raised over 50000 And it's just been slowly building since then. And so it's given us a great base, which in addition to the private investors' money, we'll be able to fund the feature with. So what's your feeling around the way that sort of the indie film game has changed over the last 10 years? I mean, which is at least how long you've been in it. I mean, are... Filmmakers really looking at Kickstarter as as the way your project gets at least gets its its nut to get started and, and gain attention, or are people still looking for either you know full funding from companies or what's what's that ratio like? Kickstarter has really changed the game. I think it depends project by project. There are so many different ways to put together a feature film project in terms of funding. And depending on where you're at and what you've accomplished up into the current point that you're at now, um, there's a lot of projects that will go to Kickstarter and raise finishing funds. In fact, uh, something someone said to me once that I thought was very appropriate was it's really not so much Kickstarter as it is Kick Finisher that a lot of people use it to complete their projects. And most of the projects that do really well on Kickstarter that are film projects are ones that are already in the can, been shot. And so they have a ton of great footage that they can show everybody. Or they're extremely well-developed and they have a ton of great concept art and a really good trailer to show people. But if you don't have really great stuff to show that's really going to grab people, then um, you know chances are your crowdfunding project is not going to do too well. You have to have a lot of good stuff. And so in a lot of cases, the the more well-developed your project is when you do put it out there and ask for funding from the public at large, the better it will do. And because we've had this following from YouTube, um, there's a lot of people who are already aware of what the Spoon Killer is and so forth. And so that was a boost for us when we did our thing. I noticed that part of your uh, budget breakdown on on Kickstarter is uh, marketing and festivals. Let's imagine that the um, the film is finished and it's time to start uh, developing that that festival strategy. What do you think that's going to look like this time, knowing what you know and having done what you've done? It all comes down to timing and seasonal timing, like what time of year will we have a finished cut that we can submit to a festival? And that will really determine what festivals we hit up first. Um, We definitely want to, as your listeners probably know, it's uh, very valuable and important to be very careful and thoughtful in selecting where you're going to premiere your film. There's the North American premiere, there's the U.S. premiere, uh, Canadian premiere, European premiere, and so forth, depending on where you are showing the film. And if you want to get it into the best festivals, that will give your film the most prestige, the most attention, and hopefully have buyers from some of the best companies, then you want to 
um, aim for just really a handful of festivals. And so there's TIFF, there's the Toronto International Film Festival, uh, and there's Sundance, and there's Cannes. Uh, and um, there are some other um, smaller festivals, but that are very prestigious, um, such as Tribeca. We actually received a very positive uh, article written about our Kickstarter campaign and about the horribly slow murderer movie project um, from Tribeca Film Festival uh, on their website, where they chose us as their their favorite Kickstarter project um, of the of the week. Uh, and so it was a wonderful article written up um, by the festival. Uh, and I had never contacted anyone from Tribeca before. And so that was a really nice thing that came about simply by doing the Kickstarter, which is um, gives your project a nice marketing uh, boost, a nice bit of outreach, just by putting it out there into the world that it's something that you're doing. Um, and so it would be probably one of those festivals that I mentioned that we would target uh, to try to get the most attention from um, acquisitions people, from distrib distributors. And then um, depending on the time of year that we have a cut that's ready to show, um, we would target one of those where in most of those festivals, it usually has to be a premiere for them to program it. And then um, also, hopefully, we will develop some relationships with some sales agents and people who are just well-connected um, with some of these festivals um, before we do the outreach. So uh, hopefully, it's not a completely cold submission, uh, but would hopefully be a submission from someone who already has a relationship of some kind with the festival. Yeah, I would think you actually want to start developing those sales relationships, you know, now or, or early in production. Uh, yes. They really need the time to work and sell it. And a lot of them, all they really need is concept art and, uh, and the con you know, the concept itself. Absolutely. Yeah. And something that first time filmmakers never realize and take into account is just how much work needs to be done um, beyond the making of your film. It takes so much work to be properly prepared to hit the festival circuit uh, in terms of marketing materials, the poster, having a press kit, um, having ideally what we did when we took the short film to festivals. We wanted it to be memorable. And when you go to a film festival, I mean, it, if you're lucky enough to get into a festival, it's great. But your film is going to be shown amongst a huge list of many, many other films. And ideally, you want your film to stand out. So whatever you can do to make your poster artwork very attention-getting, um, whatever stills that you include in your press kit um, should be very attention-getting. And nothing should be just sort of bland looking or ordinary looking. Ideally, it should be something that's very striking and will grab people's attention. And then something we did, um, we did this at uh, Fantastic Fest and at several other festivals. We made these little souvenir spoons uh, with the Ginasaji's face in the bowl of the spoon, which we handed out to people um, at, uh, at festivals. And it's just kind of a fun thing that would help people to remember the project. And I think that whatever your film is, of course, if it's a comedy, um, it makes sense to come up with something that's fun. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's good to come up with some, some, some additional things to get 
to draw people's attention to your film, but it just takes a massive amount of preparation and work uh, to be able to make all these marketing materials. And I think a lot of first time or filmmakers underestimate that. You must have seen a lot of other horror shorts uh, played alongside of yours. Um, and you know, some of them good, some of them bad. Um, do you, have any recommendations for those folks who are, are making shorts or thinking about making more shorts on, you know, what makes them festival acceptable and what doesn't? Well, the only thing that in terms of festival acceptable that's really worth noting uh, at the top of my head is length. You do not want to make a short film for festivals that's 40 minutes long. Don't do it. They will not be able to program it most likely, because it's at a length where they have to create these programming blocks. And usually a short film will be fit into a program of short films that's a feature length. And so generally, anything from really one minute long all the way up to 20 minutes long, maybe 25 minutes. But once you get beyond like a half hour, um, it, you, you suddenly have a short that's no longer a short, but yet it's too short to be a feature. And so it kind of falls into this, this um, no man's land, if you will, between feature length, which would be really uh, probably more than 80 minutes or 85 minutes. Um, and then if you get, like I said, if you get have something that's 40 minutes long, you know, you could have a really good film and it's quite possible that a lot of festivals will have to turn it down because there's no way they can fit it into a block of other films that they can program well. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. What's, what are you most looking forward to once this, this puppy is done? Um, is there a part of the festival circuit you like, you like best or festival experience? I, I love film festivals so much. I love the film festival experience of attending it as a filmmaker and being able to show my work to audiences that I get to talk to afterwards. And it's just such a gratifying experience that for me, that's what filmmaking is all about, is making something for people to enjoy or be moved by and connect with and then to be able to have that connection with them in person uh, is so gratifying um, that um, I'm just really looking forward to taking this thing to festivals. Uh, and it's also a great excuse to travel and get to see places that I wouldn't normally get to see. And so that's, um, that's exciting too. Indeed. Do you have your eye on any particular festival for a premiere? Um, you know, it, it as I said before, it depends on um, when we have a finished cut. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm aiming high with it in terms of the premiere and going to go for one of the big ones, as I mentioned, right. um, to see if we can get, get into one of those. Um, and then, but then there's places, um, there's a lot of genre festivals that I love dearly, like Fantastic Fest and Fantasia uh, and Sieges, um, and uh, where I'm really hoping that we get a, uh, a long and fruitful festival run with this feature. Oh, I'm sure you will. We have a question from the, uh, the live listeners here. Uh, it's an anonymous listener, so I have a feeling they uh, uh -oh. are asking this uh, <laughs> unfirmly in cheek. The question is, 
Why a spoon? <laughs> uh, why a spoon? Why not? <laughs> because it hasn't been done much. I mean, there is some joke from, uh, isn't it Robin Hood? It is um, Prince of Thieves about, you know, use a spoon, it'll, it'll hurt more. Um, cut his heart out with a spoon. It's dull, you twit, it'll hurt more. Something like that. Um, I, I don't know. I just, uh, I have this affinity for unconventional weapons. If you see criticized, um, you will never look at office supplies the same way again. And I hope that horribly slow does the same thing for cutlery. Um, I think that uh, for better or for worse, possibly for worse, this film has inspired more obnoxious kids in school to hit their friends with spoons than any other film in the history of cinema. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just it, honestly, the idea was something that I thought would be funny. And I just thought it would be funny to, to make this very serious, intense horror trailer about a killer with a spoon. And it just seemed, it was silly and um, just a, a ridiculous idea to be taken, to be played seriously. And um, just thought it would be fun. Richard, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Uh, this was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, Horribly Slow is honestly one of my top uh, you know, festival short films of all time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's great to be with you. So you've got three days left and three or four days left in this Kickstarter campaign. Um, they can go to Kickstarter and type in probably horribly slow, right? Or yeah, or, if, you, if yeah. you put in horribly slow, um, it will come up the full title of the feature. Cause I didn't want it to be identical to the short is Gino Saji. The Horribly Slow murder with the Extremely Inefficient Weapon, which could never fit on a marquee in a theater. Uh, and so it would just be Dinosaji. That's always an option for a shorter title. Visit the show notes at filmfestivalsecrets.com slash podcast to see links from this episode. You can find me at the Film Festival Secrets website or on Twitter at FFSecrets. Thanks for listening. <laughs>